0: This is the Thanks for Sharing podcast, the podcast where we explore all things recovery, healing, and relationship. Remember to subscribe and download episodes in the iTunes store, Google Play, or on the Podbean app. And while you're there, I'd love a review. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Thanks for Sharing. I'm your host, Jackie Pack. Today's episode, I wanted to build on some of the momentum, I would say, that we gained looking at the Dawa Fully feeling that we've covered in the previous, I don't know, seven or eight episodes. And I thought this would be a really good place to talk about the dimensions of courtship. Now, this is something that Dr. Patrick Carnes has in his workbook, Facing the Shadow. And I think it would be, like I said, timely to kind of look at how he breaks out the different dimensions of courtship and how courtship develops and what goes into building relationships especially when we've just been looking at maybe how we were initially introduced to relationships in our family of origin now one of the things that i often tell clients is that most often trauma happens relationally right whether that's something that was done to us by another person or something that was not done for us or to us That should have been done by another person trauma typically happens relationally now often when we experience trauma sometimes we can experience it very individually and very personally but it's usually part of the piece that makes it trauma right is it's done by a person who's in a you know relationship with us in some way now obviously there's things like natural disasters wars, things like that, that can still be traumatizing and impact us that way. And they're also impacting the people we're in relationships with, which also has that impact on us. So when we're looking at trauma, right? We also are looking at what is the relational piece to that trauma. And then often recovery or healing from trauma tends to also work best when it's done relationally which can be difficult when the trauma is done relationally, we can be hesitant to step into and have relationships that we trust as part of our healing process. Now in the book, The Tao of Fully Feeling, he talked about repetition compulsion. And I've had some people ask me, what book are you gonna do next? And I think I knew where I wanted to go, but one of the things that I was thinking about was, and I will own that I have this tendency to, and it comes from my trauma story, right? And the role that I played in my family, probably that plays also into the, my birth order. But I, I have this ability. I don't know if it's good or bad, probably some of both. Like if there's a crisis or there's an emergency, I am definitely somebody who is going to be handy in an emergency or in a crisis because I can just kind of put my head down focus on what needs to be done, put some blinders on, tune out what is not important or necessary to focus on or that would be distracting or maybe paralyzing for me. Boom, that's just out. I don't focus on that. Head down, go forward. One of the negative things about that that I'm aware of is that I don't always recognize the impact of that situation and that ability to tune things out. I'm not always aware of A, how stressful it is, B, the impact that it's actually having on me emotionally or physically. I'm just not always aware of that. And so sometimes I can be aware, like I'm going into a stressful time period. So April for me typically is a busy, stressful month. And I knew I had couple of things unexpectedly added to my April. So heading into April, I was kind of like, okay, I know I need to be prepared for this month because it's stressful. But when I'm actually in the stress of it, I don't necessarily notice that or feel stressed. Now, one of the things you can tell, I've picked up a cold, right? Often my body might give me messages like, hey, we're we're, we're struggling here, this is a lot to deal with. So I got some, I wouldn't call it a cold. I don't know, I'm not sure what it was. I got some respiratory horrible thing. I'm on like day 12 of it and I still haven't quite kicked it. And I know a lot of people who have gotten something similar. It seems to either hit in your chest or like it's a really, really bad head cold. Mine, for whatever reason, all wet into my lungs. Not necessarily, I don't really have congestion or, like your typical cold symptoms, but I was having some serious difficulty breathing and you know had to get some steroids and antibiotics. And when I eventually went into the doctor, he was very concerned with how my breathing sounded, which I was too, which is why I went in. So in thinking about the next book that I want to do, I was asking myself, right, is this the right timing to do this book? It makes sense to me because we gained a lot of momentum from the Tao fully feeling, really understanding our initial exposure to relationships in our family of origin. And the author talked about repetition compulsion in there. And Dr. Patrick Carnes in his book, The Betrayal Bond, that's definitely what that's about is repetition compulsion, right? We're really looking at how these patterns replicate themselves in our adult years. So on the one hand, I'm like, wow, it's, it would make good timing. It would make sense timing wise. And that was a lot. That last book was heavy. I have you know, people who have talked to me about it and said, wow, that was really heavy. They've kind of been surprised that I'm like, oh, I know it was heavy for me too. It was heavy and there were a lot of memories that got triggered for me, things that I thought about, feelings that I felt just reading that book. You know, some of them I shared in some of the podcast episodes, but not all of them or even a quarter of them, right? And so I don't want to replicate kind of my trauma response of just head down, muster forward, go push through it. And I do wanna be able to build on the momentum of what we just learned in that last book. I I don't know that doing like a, still a good, interesting book that teaches us, I don't know if the timing to go there and maybe, but it's a little bit lighter. I don't know if that's the timing yet. So I think what I'm gonna do is we're gonna take the month of April off and I'm not gonna do a book. I'll still do podcast episodes, but I'm not gonna really dive into a book. And then starting in May, we're going to look at The Betrayal Bond by Dr. Patrick Carnes. Because while we've been looking at our family of origin, you know, he kind of ends that book with some beautiful examples of how we might be able to transition into relationships in our adult years that actually heal the damage that was done to us in our family of origin and in those relationships. And so I, I want to maybe look a little bit more in depth at that And it feels like the timing is right to move from the Tao of fully feeling into the betrayal bond with a little bit of a break in April. So hopefully, you know, that feels okay to you too. And I'll do some podcast episodes in between that I think are also helpful. So what I want to do today is look at the dimensions of courtship. We're going to look at the first six in this episode and then next week we'll look at the remaining six. There's 12 dimensions of courtship. And you know, it's interesting. He talks about how that in most unhealthy relationships, there's this distortion of normal relationship development or what he calls courtship. So he says implicit in most compulsive sexual patterns is a distortion of normal courtship. Well, of course it is, right? Because inherent in our family of origin relationships, were distortions of healthy relationships. So it's not like we got nothing. We just got some distorted or warped or misunderstood. I like that word too. Like I just, this is a misunderstanding that I got based on my experiences. So, you know, I'll I'll often do the courtship dimension. I do it with most of my clients. This isn't just something that I do with my clients who are dealing with sex and love addiction, or compulsive relationship behaviors. I wanna look at this, because I just don't think we talk enough about how healthy relationships happen. You know, I think one of the takeaways, and I said this kind of at the beginning of the last book, was I was so impressed when the author, Pete Walker, called out that we are facing an epidemic of family dysfunction. And I remember, I think I said, like, I've thought that, but like, I have not dared to like write that in a book or speak that out loud. And he talked about all the reasons why we might be in denial about the dysfunction that we experienced early in our childhood. And so I think if we're in denial about that, there's no chance we have an understanding what the distortions are that show up in our adult relationships. So I think That's why I'm going to choose to go to the betrayal bond starting in May. But I want to look at how does courtship go awry, right? We kind of have an understanding from what we learned about in the Dao of fully feeling from our childhood and family dysfunction. But he talks about 12 dimensions of courtship. Now, I like lists like this. I'm not necessarily a list maker myself. Um, My mom was a huge list maker. My mom made lists about things that you don't need to make lists about because you could like just look at it and see. So you don't need to make a list. But my mom was a big list maker. So part of me has a little bit of like a, I just don't like lists. But then there's another part of me that I really like. Here's how it works. Like, let me break it down into steps because that's always helpful. Because, you know, sometimes, especially for me, my family of origin, dysfunction, I don't know how that works. I don't always, I'm not even always aware of the steps that you would take to get from one place to another place. So I do like lists in that way. And and I don't necessarily think of his dimensions of courtship as a list. And, you know, when we get to the 12th one, he'll say, it's not like you're done. Now it's part of going back and continuing the process. So thinking of it more of kind of like a cycle or kind of just this, yeah, like a a cycle that we move in. It can be a dysfunctional cycle, but it can also be a functional cycle and a healthy cycle that renews and restores us as individuals. So the first dimension of courtship is noticing. Now he says, this is the ability to perceive attractive traits in others. He says, With an existing partner, this means you're able to stay conscious of that person's desirable traits, which I think is important, that like I notice that you're attractive, I also can continue. It's not like I have to keep seeing new things about you. I can stay aware of the desirable traits. I'm also able to see them shift and evolve and move as this person grows and evolves. He says this dimension requires the capacity to also filter out traits that while desirable, aren't a good match for you. He says, in other words, noticing also means discriminating. So sometimes when I'm doing this, I mean, the way he sets it up, and there's certainly dimensions in this that I think don't apply outside of a romantic relationship. But I would say really, when I talk about it with clients, because sometimes I'll say, let's let's talk about this first with just relationships in general, not your primary relationship or your romantic committed relationship. Sometimes I'll even say, let's look at this with friends, right? So sometimes I might be saying to them, tell me some traits about friends that maybe they were desirable, but weren't necessarily a good match for you. And usually we're talking about in the past, how did that end up working out? And what do you see now that you didn't see then or what do you what stands out now that back then maybe it was kind of a pink flag not a red flag and so you just kind of moved past it didn't think much of it and then later it became really relevant and maybe even very clear that it was definitely a red flag right and so looking at and noticing now i also will say to clients sometimes That doesn't stop just because we're in committed relationships, right? It doesn't mean that I don't notice attractive traits in others. Hopefully we're noticing kind acts on somewhat of a regular basis while we're going about our day. And, you know, I don't necessarily have to insert myself into that, but I might notice a moment between a parent and a child or a young couple or an old couple, right? I might notice things that are attractive in other people that are helpful to me or restore my faith in humankind or bring a smile to my face and reminds me that there are good people in this world right now sometimes when i'm working with sex addicts i will say to them it's also while you might notice attractive people if the only thing you're noticing are physical attributes that's probably out of balance, right? That's probably some things that are going awry because physical traits of people don't tell the whole story. We don't know enough about a person simply based on their physical appearance. And so if that's all that you're noticing and then you're just quickly scanning and moving to the next, you know, I usually wanna know what is, what is that about? Why are we constantly moving through people and not that like I don't know that that's really noticing right I would say that's more scanning and scanning isn't necessarily as helpful as noticing so while noticing doesn't necessarily stop when we're in committed relationships I do think it's also important to notice that I'm in a committed relationship and so while I might notice somebody who's attractive I don't have to do anything with that I don't even have to really focus on that person much because again I'm in a committed relationship. It's not relevant information for me to really do anything with. The second dimension of courtship is attraction. So, and again, I I always tell people these are separate dimensions, right? They're standalone dimensions. Do they interact with each other? Sure, but it's not noticing slash attraction, right? I need to be noticing a lot of things in my environment. Some of them I might find attractive. Some of them I might find dangerous, threatening, that type of stuff. I also need to be noticing those things. So Dr. Karn says, attraction is the ability to feel drawn towards and imagine acting on those feelings. We're not acting on those feelings yet. We're just feeling drawn towards. He says, this dimension assumes a functional arousal map in which you select behaviors and persons who are appropriate for you. He says attraction involves curiosity as well as desire about the physical, emotional, and intellectual traits of others. He says in an existing relationship, attraction means being able to maintain an openness to change and the unknown. In reality-based relationships, partners keep discovering the other. He says attraction is where passion starts and how relationships endure. So, you know, Question number one, that's important to ask ourselves, am am I attracted to healthy, appropriate people? And can I maintain that attraction for that person over time? Does that attraction grow with the relationship? He says, can I have fantasies that are appropriate? And then also, can I move beyond those fantasies and feelings in order to actually initiate or maintain a relationship with the person that I'm attracted to? And again, sometimes that is a sexual or a romantic attraction, right? But I would hope, like sometimes I will say to some of my clients, like, do you find your friends attractive? And sometimes they'll kind of look at me like, well, I'm not sexually attracted to my friends. And I'm like, no, I, I get that. Like, I'm not saying, do you find your friends sexually attractive? But if you think you're by far the most attractive person in your friend group, I want to know why and I'm not talking just about physical looks either, right? Like do I hang out with people? Do I surround myself with people who I perceive as less than me? Or on the other hand, the other side of that problem would be do I hang out with people that I perceive are so much more advanced and far ahead from where I am and I see myself in a one down position? Probably not a functional arousal template, right? But I think we should be attracted to people we're spending time with whether that's intellectually, whether that's emotionally, mentally, physically, all of that. Like we should find these people attractive if we're going to be investing energy and time in these types of relationships. Now the third courtship dimension is flirtation. So the first one noticing and even attraction, the other person may or may not know that those things are happening. That's more of an internal process. Certainly we could say something, right? But it might not be appropriate. But noticing and attraction are things that we're noticing in ourselves, responses in ourselves, not necessarily making them overt. So flirtation, he says, first of all, everyone needs to know how to flirt. Now, sometimes when I'm going through the dimensions with partners, of sex addicts, that phrase, everyone needs to know how to flirt, is extremely triggering for them. And I'll say, okay, he's not saying flirt like a sex addict. That's not what he said. Flirting is, and he actually kind of defines and and outlines that. He says, successful flirting uses playfulness, seductiveness. Again, seductiveness may not be necessary in this type of friendship or this type of relationship, right? I don't need to be flirting in seductive ways with the hostess at the restaurant that's going to be seating us. So he says, and social cues to send signals of interest and attraction to the desirable person. This ability extends to noticing and accurately reading flirtation from others, right? So sometimes too, like I might sometimes be working with a client and I may say like, sounds like this person might be flirting with you. And they're like, no, they're not. And I'm like, well, do you know when people are flirting with you? Like, can you accept that? Or do you even recognize it, right? Because we should be recognizing that as well. Now, sometimes again, sometimes flirting is unwanted. And again, we need to be able to read. He does talk about, you know, that, Flirting extends to that ability to notice and accurately reading whether it's appropriate to be engaging this way or whether I'm okay with somebody engaging me in that way. He says the critical factor in flirtation is knowing when it's appropriate to send and receive. And he says in long-term relationships though, success requires ongoing flirtation with your partner. We can't just stop that because now we're in a committed relationship. And so what's the point of flirting, right? Flirting is a way of having playfulness in the relationship to have some fun in the relationship and to build some sexual tension with each other that we enjoy. Now the fourth dimension of courtship is demonstration. Again, just want to point out, these are each their own little category So flirting is not how we demonstrate flirting is playfulness in relationships, right? Sometimes I think about it, like how we say just one more note on flirting before we move on, right? That the, what's the saying? You get more bees with honey than vinegar, something like that. Not bees with honey. I don't know. Flies with honey than vinegar. I'm notoriously also bad for messing up sayings like that, like, They just don't always come out if I do know them in my head and I'll know what the saying is, but I just kind of horribly make it go wrong. So one last thought about flirtation is it's our ability to like, not be charming in a way that's manipulative, right? But that I'm engaging with my surroundings and the people in my surroundings in a way that reinforces to me that the world is a friendly place and that I can be appropriately friendly in the world. So I think that's one way to look at flirtation if it tends to be triggering trauma, current or previous, and you're having a difficult time with that concept. Okay, so let's move into demonstration. He says, sometimes inaccurately, this is described as showing off. He said, demonstration is where we demonstrate a physical trait, skill, or capability. Demonstration can also include dressing to attract the other person. In sexual relationships, it can be doing like sex-related actions to increase the other person's interest. But he says, you know, of course, with all of these, it's important to stay aware of what you're doing so that it's intentional and is appropriate to both the context and the person. So another way of he talks about demonstration is using skill and ability to further attract a suitable partner or to demonstrate to your partner that you are also a suitable partner and that they are lucky to have you just as you're lucky to have them in this relationship. So some of the questions he asks on this, are you able to attract attention to yourself and show your qualities and positive traits? now some people are really uncomfortable with maybe the spotlight or stepping into the limelight but can you do it i think it's important to be able to demonstrate and do that can i speak up when it's my turn right am i constantly speaking over people that wouldn't be a good way to demonstrate my competencies and my capabilities if i'm constantly having to talk but When appropriate, am I able to step into that space, speak up, demonstrate my knowledge, my intellect, my understanding of a certain thing? He says one of the questions here are if you can demonstrate your skills, right, or your intellect or anything like that, can you also do that sexually? And how is that different, right? Because it should look differently in a professional setting than it does in a sexual relationship, they shouldn't look the same. And then he asked this question, are your sexual behaviors specific to a relationship or are they intended to be noticed by anyone? Again, that's where it might go awry, right? If if this is specific and appropriate to this relationship and this person and I know that this person is okay with this behavior versus I just put sexual behavior out there And it's kind of like just throwing my fishing line out, hoping to catch anything. Well, that's how it goes awry. And that would not be an appropriate way to demonstrate those things. Okay, let's see, we are on one, two, three, four, five. So number five, the fifth dimension is romance. He says, this is the ability to experience, express and receive passion. So again, this is one where sometimes my clients will say, so this one doesn't really belong outside of a sexual relationship, right? And I'm like, well, it could. I mean, we probably would call it romance, but when he talks about the ability to experience, express and receive passion, yeah. Can we do that with friends? I hope so. You know, with some of my friends, I can see them at something they do well you know, and I see that passion, I see them come alive, and I'm in awe. And I can express that to them. I can allow them to express it to me. I can leave and feel, you know, just inspired by that whole interaction or what I witnessed if they're, you know, doing something. And I can express that. I can think about it later. That becomes part of the relationship. And And part of the working part of the relationship that we get to have conversations about. So in that way, I think it can apply to closer relationships. And not just our sexual or committed relationships. He says, romance assumes the ability to be aware of all of the feelings of attraction, vulnerability, and risk. Now, I would say sometimes with certain friendships that I have, I feel that vulnerability, you know. Or sometimes I might be sharing with them and sharing deeply in that moment. And, you know, maybe the next day or an hour later, I think, did I overshare? Was that too much? Do I do that too often? Do I also let them share with me? Which is typical of me when I'm sharing, like from that vulnerable place, I'm going to feel a risk. You know, with most of my relationships, I've also got enough evidence to support that it is a, pretty safe risk or it's a known risk and that they also share with me back, right? I'm not the only one sharing at that level and that they also take their turn and get vulnerable and share with me. He says, more important, a lover must be able to express these feelings and have sufficient self-worth to accept the expressions of care as true. Now, I think that's so important, right? Because I mean, we could talk about, we could literally say nothing kills romance. Like if somebody is telling us how much they care for us or how much they love us or how much we mean to them. And we start to question that, like, "Mm, I don't know if I feel that way. Like, but what about this that I do poorly? Or what about how I embarrassed myself here? Or what about how I got this wrong? Like, again, that's going to kill romance, right? That is going to kind of ruin the mood or kill the moment, whether that's with our lover, or whether that's with a friend, not trusting them when they're being genuine and vulnerable is going to really take away that opportunity that we have to receive that from them, or, you know, to give that to them and have them receive that from us. I think those things are important. And so I think just keeping in mind that our role in that is to have sufficient self-worth that we can accept those true expressions as just that as being true and that we give them with the assumption that this person is going to believe us and receive those things and that it matters to say those things not just to keep them to ourselves but to actually vocalize them somehow that deepens and benefits both of us in the relationship. He also says this included in romance is the ability to test the reality of the feelings. For example, he says, is what you perceive in the other person accurate or merely a projection of what you want to exist? Now that's a good question to be thinking, right? Do I just see in others what I want to see, or is it real? Is that actually who they are? So sometimes, right, and, and I love these beautiful moments if they come up and I'm in a session, with a couple where the one person does something maybe unpredictable, or maybe something that the one partner, that's not what they're asking them to say, or that's not what they want them to do, right? Not necessarily that it's wrong what they're doing or how they're responding. It's just maybe not what their partner was predicting. And sometimes maybe even as the therapist, it's not what I'm predicting, but they go there and it's genuine and, It's vulnerable. It's just different from maybe what we were expecting, right? And can we still make space for that? Like sometimes it's in those moments when somebody is doing what we don't predict, when we really get a glimpse into them as their own person. And I think it's important in relationships that we don't lose sight of who they are as an individual simply because they're in this relationship with us. The last question he asks, are the people selected consistently positive and good or negative and bad choices for you? And again, when we talk about in Betrayal Bond, when we get into that book, right? I think so often, and this is just a continuation of our family of origin, we give people so many second, and third, and tenth, and twentieth chance when the behavior is always the same. And it's consistently negative or it's consistently crossing boundaries that should not be crossed in relationships. And then one time they say something nice or they do something nice and we're like, okay, I'm still in this relationship. That made all of these second and third and 40th chances acceptable because I got this. And we have to recognize, no, that is the trauma repetition. That's the Uh, repetition compulsion that's happening and we're giving them more credit when the pattern consistently is negative. Sometimes we can have the flip where, right? I mean, sometimes I have to talk with couples and say, look, this is an imperfect person. You're not going to have a relationship with a perfect person and neither is your spouse, right? So we also have to say, while they might make mistakes, generally speaking, they're a good person They have my best interest at heart. They do what's best for them. They do what's best for our family. Even though they do it imperfectly, we can have conversations about that and I can still see and express that I see their value and worth. So both sides of that also important and then the areas in between. Okay, we're gonna talk about the sixth dimension of courtship. This one is individuation. So he talks about in the midst of the romance, Healthy people are able to be true to themselves. And I just really like how he says that. I think so often we see in movies, sometimes it's modeled kind of codependent relationships instead of understanding that we have to individuate if we're actually going to have moments of connection. If moments of connection are possible, it takes two individuals to come together and connect. And two individuals who are not the same because nobody is the same, right? So healthy people have to be able to be true to them while also being able to feel love and romance and all of those things that are happening in relationships. He says they feel absolutely free to be who they are without fear of disapproval or control by the other. They tell the truth and they do not feel intimidated. They do not have to give on important matters. Such people can ask for their needs to be met and they do not have to defer to the other. And they trust that people care for them as they are. I love the way he talks about that because I think that is so often, maybe it's just me. That was a really difficult piece for me in my long-term relationship. That was not something in my family of origin. We did not tell the truth. I could spend hours, right? Sometimes a fight with my mom would occur and I could spend hours trying to convince her that I did not believe she was wrong and that I believed I was 100% wrong and horrible for thinking whatever it was that I thought that got us in the argument, right? And I had to convince her That i truly believed that so you know sometimes i've said this before on this podcast i'll say this to clients like i did not come out of my family of origin being a very honest person and it took me some time to really kind of rework honesty in my life i think i'm still a pretty good liar and it took me a while to recognize that that's not a good thing and that's not something to be proud of that's actually there's a lot of pain and trauma in that statement for me. But I also can say with, you know, empathy for that younger me that she also came by her dishonesty honestly. I couldn't tell the truth in my family. None of us could say the truth in our family. And we often felt intimidated and there would be disapproval or control if we did not say what was expected or demanded or commanded by us you know we couldn't really ask for our needs to be met and I didn't come out trusting that people would care for me as I was so that was really something new for me to learn I remember and I knew my husband for like six years before we got married we started off as friends so I had a pretty good idea of who he was and I wasn't wrong but there were still surprises that came, you know, when we got married and we were living together. And I remember I was coming home from work one day and, you know, I mean, he usually asks, I usually get home later than he does. And so usually when he's leaving, he usually leaves before me. And he will always say like, Oh, what time are you off? Right. And that was a big one in my family of origin. Like curfew was very black and white. And it was kind of this like do or die rule. Right. And I could be three minutes late from curfew and it was a three-hour fight about how could I be so inconsiderate to keep my mom up that late, right? Never mind the fact that like now we're up three hours longer instead of three minutes. Nope, that wasn't the fight that we had. It was how inconsiderate I was. And, you know, it didn't matter. Sometimes like, again, before I could drive, I'm like, mom... I live the furthest away. I was, or I was the last one to be dropped off. I don't know if that's the order that their mom dropped me off. Like, I don't really have control over that. But my mom felt I absolutely should have controlled that situation and been home earlier. And so that was just something like, you know, being late was like, oh, and so, you know, one time, I mean, I was going to leave on time. I wasn't doing anything inappropriate. But as I'm leaving, I think, you know, my supervisor had talked to me. We just kind of chatted for like 15, 20 minutes, right? Nothing inappropriate whatsoever. The My whole commute home, you know, my husband, I was coming home from the North. He commuted from the South. So I was like, okay, he doesn't know if traffic was bad. I can come up with this. I can, like, I spent my 25 minute commute constructing this elaborate lie to deliver when I walked in the door, right? And I walk in the door and he just acted like I had not done one thing wrong. And I was kind of like, wait, where's, where's the fight? Like I'm prepared, right? I learned to be prepared. And he would just, he just like, I remember this particular day and he was just like, hey, how, you know, how was work? And I'm kind of like, fine. Like, when is the... Like, when is the punishment coming, right? So I'm kind of tiptoeing around, like, fine. And I'm thinking, I mean, I'm, I'm 20 minutes late. Like, again, 20 minutes is not, to me, that significant. But I grew up where three minutes was extremely significant. And so, you know, he had dinner ready. We're sitting down, we're eating. We're kind of discussing work and everything. And, you know, I finally am like, are you mad that I was late? Like, I'm so confused at this point, right? And he kind of looks at me and he's like, oh, no. Should I be mad that you're late? And I was just like, well, no, but like, no, I don't think so. But like, I don't know. Like, why wouldn't you be mad that I'm late? Like, just starting to recognize like, I can be me. I can be late. And as long as I'm not doing anything like relationship damaging, right? Which I don't, he lets me be me, right? And that was just such a novel thing. And even though I knew him and I knew in many aspects of our relationship, which is why I agreed to marry him, I knew that he did not need me to be somebody I wasn't. That was not his expectation of me. Even though we were both young, we were like 23 when we got married, we were young. We had a lot of learning and growing to do together. I knew I could be me. I didn't quite know who that was, right? And I didn't know like something like that that I'd be like, wait a minute, I didn't know that was okay. Like, you're just assuming if I'm late, there's a reason and I'll tell you if I need to, but you're not necessarily suspicious, like whatever it is, right? Because guess what? Sometimes he got hung up at work or he was talking to a coworker at work and he didn't assume that he would be in trouble. And so that was something for me that ability to individuate and not lose myself i think particularly for me as a woman kind of being raised i think a lot of messaging that women get is very codependent like if we're listening to the messaging i think we don't stand a chance but to be codependent in so many ways and to give to others what we refuse to give to ourselves or Don't feel like it's okay to give to ourselves, but we're giving to others in a way like, please, please, please give this back to me. And I didn't want to do that, but I didn't know, right? I didn't know if I could still be me and be loved for that. And I think, like I said, I don't know if that's big for a lot of people. That was really big in my recovery journey to learn that I could be loved for who I was not necessarily my best self or not this perfect self, but just for who I was, you know, mistakes, imperfections, quirks, idiosyncrasies, all of that stuff, like that all of that can be part of a valuable self and something that is to be loved. And so I think that's a key one that I think is also crucial when I'm working with individuals or even couples Knowing that, that as a person, you are loved where you are, right? That makes the remaining six that we're gonna talk about possible. And not just possible, I think it makes it really beautiful. When we're starting at this place of, I am loved for who I am. So many other parts of relationships start to line up when we operate from that belief, and we also allow others to operate from that same belief. So, okay, next episode, we're gonna get into the remaining six courtship dimensions. Think about those first six that we talked about and how they might look in relationship to the people you interact with on a regular basis. Of course, some are closer to you than others are in terms of emotional space and relational space, but how all six of those characteristics or all six of those dimensions can still show up in the relationships that you are a part of on a regular basis. So think about that and then next week we'll get into the remaining six. At the end of this episode, I want to remind you that your story matters. Remember there's something meaningful in every chapter. Don't wait to share your story until it's finished. Until next time. Jackie. The Legal Stuff. This podcast is solely for the purpose of information and entertainment and does not constitute therapy, nor should it replace competent professional help. The Prayer of the Perfectionist. Nobody has time for perfection. We are pursuing progress. Help me to remember the only step I need to focus on is the next right step for me. Help me to remember that life is a journey. Help me to be able to separate all that I am learning from all that I have to do. Help me to remember that I am not alone. I can ask for help. Help me to strive for frequent awakenings, not mastery. I am enough. Amen.